This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I am your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Todd Rogers. He is the co-author of the book, Writing for Busy Readers, Communicate More Effectively in the Real World. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about writing, effective writing, especially in the context of capturing the attention of busy readers in today's fast-paced society. This is a podcast. It is long-form content. It is not a TikTok. Although I think some of you are listening right now thinking, get to the content. And I guess that's the problem, right? (laughs) And we're going to be talking about how writers have not just a responsibility to ensure that your readers are going to easily understand the information that you're presenting to them, but that we have to go beyond that, get it, to improve the readability and our effectiveness of written communication because of how quickly written information is skimmed or passed on. And so we're going to boil it down. We're going to talk about takeaways, including the importance of making reading easy for busy readers by using short, familiar words, avoiding complex sentences and big words, the concept of user design thinking when applied to writing, where the writer takes responsibility for ensuring that readers can easily understand the content rather than placing that burden on the reader. It's the writer's responsibility. And the principle of less is more when it comes to writing, emphasizing the effectiveness of conveying information concisely and avoiding overwhelming the readers with excessive content. So in light of that, I'm going to step aside and let you get right to this conversation with Todd Rogers. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Todd Rogers. Todd, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So glad to have you. And one, I want to say I really like the cover of your book. It's called Writing for Busy Readers, Communicate More Effectively in the Real World. And you're a co-author, but I love how you've got it where you've got this longer title there and then words crossed off. So I'll read this out loud and people can kind of see it in their head visually. It says, you are writing more than ever, comma, competing for the attention of busy readers who skim And then you've got different words crossed out to where it just says writing for busy readers. And that just conveys so much about not just the scenario we find ourselves in as readers, as well as writers, but also great marketing. So kudos, kudos to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. We were inspired by a woman named Ayelet Fishbach has a book where she had some words crossed out. And I was like, oh my God, so much of what we're talking about is in fact about condensing what we say. And yeah, thank you. I like it. I actually have a mug that I will show you where it's like paragraphs of text that just says fewer words, please, after you cross everything out. 
Love it. Love it. Uh, so I have a really curiosity itching in the back of my mind question where you're a professor of public policy at Harvard. And I'm curious as to how does that relate? I mean, I know writing's involved with everything and that's the, you know, the pat answer there, but how did you hone in on this with Jessica Lasky Fink, your co-author? How did you decide this topic is what I need to write something on when that's not really your field? Oh my God, you sound, I mean this in the best possible way, like my kids who are like, dad, you worked on getting people to vote. That's good. You work on getting kids to go to school. That's good. Writing better emails. <laughs> That's still good. Sorry. I'm going to say it. That is in some ways potentially better because it also helps those other things. Totally. Yes. No, I, I can respond to you and to my daughter at the same time and say, look, it's one level up from a specific problem. And what it is, is very often in order for us to be effective in anything, whether it is communicating to families from schools or communicating to voters or communicating to our teams or our managers or our families or writing reports. We are communicating in writing. The most common response to our writing is to not read it. That is the default behavior of everyone is to not read what we write. And so across every domain, like we talk about examples of criminal justice system, court subpoenas, we talk about getting people to sign up for food stamps and Medicaid. We talk about getting people to sign up for your newsletter or communicating marketing materials or sales pitches or coordinating a meeting. I could keep going. I could see in your eyes. I should stop. But a lot of what we do is about writing and it's practical writing. It is not poetry. It is not New Yorker articles, practical writing. It turns out all of what we do can be more effective if we write as if we are trying to be understood by people who are busy and skimming. Obviously, this is a show about productivity, and we all know how busy we are, and we know that we get, as you talk about writing emails, we all know we get so many of them. So what is it in particular about writing in this day and age or this current busy economy, busyness attention economy, I should say, where you feel like there's books on writing that have been there for a long time. And again, those have been about a particular style of writing. You're talking about something else. Why the need and why right now? I'm still circling on the first question being a variant of my children saying, really? But the short answer is that we have more demands on our time. So there are more people writing, more non-writing alternatives that are easier to get to. So there's just more demand on our time. And then at the same time, the switching costs are lower than they've ever been to go from one item to the next. And so those two combine to make it so that people spend less time than ever devoted to whatever it is we are writing to them. And of course, there are lots of communications that are not in writing. Here we are talking about the science of how people read, and which still is a modality through which a lot of our productive communications happen. Yeah, you say that basically people these days are deciding how valuable a message is without even reading it. And in fact, refer to survey statistics where people are skimming. And I almost thought this might be higher. They're skimming nearly 40% of their emails and 20% of their texts. For me, my texts are much lower because those are smaller and more bite sized. But again, that's going to vary person to person. Totally. And I, when I teach this, I'll often start with, okay, raise your hand if you've ever opened a text message, looked at it and said, I can't deal with this now. 
and everyone's hand goes up. Then I say, keep it up if you ever didn't get back to it. And everyone's hand stays up. And these are the shortest forms of communication we have. Then you go to like reports, proposals, emails, web pages. And of course, we make some snap judgment about, can I deal with this quickly? And if the answer is no, then it's like, do I have time and do I value this enough? Honestly, it's one of those things where we can almost not afford to pay attention to the most important things. And again, it's going to be based on channel. We just talked about two, texting and email. Those in and of themselves are different for a myriad of reasons that I don't really want to go into just this second. But those are just two options. We've got social media. We've got private messages. And I'm not going to list them all. I think people were just like, oh, he's going to list them all. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> I already did. Didn't I open this? Yeah. Didn't I open this with like a 72 second list of forms of writing? Yeah. And I think that's the other thing is we've got all these different channels and you can hop from inbox to inbox all within a span of 30 seconds to a minute in the palm of your hand when you're somewhere you shouldn't even be looking at anything other than paying attention to what's right in front of you. And when we think about this as productivity, there are two sides to it. There is how do we more effectively communicate with our readers? And that's what this is. This is the science of how we do that. But there's also, we are busy readers and the world is better. Our writers to us are kinder if they write in a way that makes it easier for us to read. So the way Jessica and I talk about it is, this is the science of how we write more effectively for busy readers. In addition to being more effective, it's just kinder to our readers to write in this way. I love it. Yeah. And you wouldn't think of people using the word kind. I actually really appreciate that you do. It's not just strategically sound. It's more humane. It's friendlier. Again, like you said, kind. I love it. Writing for Busy Readers, the book itself, it's not a big book. It's a normal-sized book, I should say. It's not like an oversized book. It's not super full of (laughs) words. (laughs) Giving my example earlier of the title and you're crossing different words and things out to make it more concise and compressed and distilled down to the essence and the most important pieces. One, as a reader, thank you. And then two, I definitely can see how really getting into the science and the psychology of how we as busy people read using your six principles and how we can learn to write for that for others is going to help us not just continually hone our skill in that way, but then also consume better. I was going to say differently, but I think better is the the best way to put it. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to go in a direction of one of the six principles is less is more. And then the joke naturally comes. So why write a whole book about it? <laughs> and I, I actually think it's a nice illustration of one of the, the like pre, like almost principle zero is you've got to know your goal when you're writing and you can't do anything until your goal is clear and you need to know your context and the expectations of your reader. And one of the things that Jessica and I initially were like, maybe it will be funny. It'll be a one page book. But like when people read a book, they expect it to look like a book. They expect the detail. Like we talk about, I don't know if I were to estimate 80 randomized experiments at some point in the book, because, you know, Jessica and I are behavioral scientists or let's say 50 to 80. They want the details. We are showing where's the evidence and also what does it mean for how we write? We go through lots of examples of like you're scheduling a meeting, you're writing a proposal, you're writing a report, you're writing a Slack, you're writing an email, you're writing a text. I did it again. <laughs> I listed a bunch of different types of writing. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is you're still adhering to the first principle of less is more. You're using fewer words and including, you know, fewer ideas and fewer asks of the reader. 
but you're still giving this variable or variety, I should say, of different, like if you're going to apply principle one through six, you need the, here are different ways and examples of doing that. And you could have included way more, but you didn't. And that's how the less is more is working out there. Thank you. <laughs> so less is more. And, and again, uh, what's funny is I should probably stop talking about this principle right now because of the principle itself. But I think let's just put a pin in it. Let's just say, look, less is more. That's the point is like, actually, it makes me think of I will give an example. There is a popular question when it comes to podcasting that is often asked as a best practice. And I think most people can guess what this is. What's the best length for a podcast episode? And the answer is as long as it takes to convey what you have to say and no longer. Now, that's a long way of saying less is more because podcasters like to talk. But that's the point. It's like there is no silver bullet. There is no five minute, 15 minute, and it's only 15 every time or half hour. These episodes typically 35 to 45, maybe 50 something minutes. And it's variable. We're not going to get to a certain point and say, well, that's our time. We're done. No, it's more about what is it we have to say. And because this is a living, breathing document and dialogue, I allow for it to ebb and flow. But I wanted to give that example. So there you go. That's great. Yeah. Well, the principle less is more, which would this will be the last time we probably talk about it, is that there are fewer words fewer ideas and fewer requests. What we find is that the more you add, the less likely someone is to read it all, the more likely they are to quit in the middle of reading. And when you ask for a lot of things, when you ask for multiple requests, you decrease the likelihood anyone will get back to any of it. And so it really comes back to like, we've got to be crystal clear on our goals. And one of the things that's interesting is when we show people reports or messages written that are longer or shorter, people typically think that the longer message is going to be more effective. And we consistently find that when you cut it in half, it's substantially more effective at getting a response, getting people to fill out a survey, getting people to sign up, getting people to donate money, and so on. Well, also with the less is more. No, I'm kidding. I'm done. I was. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to see if I could pull it off, and I did. So there you go. That's the first principle. Less is more. The second one, again, this one sounds like almost so much common sense that people are like, really? That's what you're saying? Which is make reading easy. And you're talking here about using short, familiar words that are brief. You're not using, you know, big sentences and, and big words that people have to go look up first and all of that. And you even talk about checking their readability with different, I think flesh reading score is one of the ones that people talk about. And, you know, what reading level, what grade level reading level are you at? And I think that you have a specific one in mind. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's fifth grade. So yes, I, when we say make reading easy. That's exactly, we're talking about, we want to make it as require the lowest grade level reading as necessary. So so it's just some statistics to start. 50% of U.S. adults read at a ninth grade reading level or lower. Half of U.S. adults read at a ninth grade reading level or lower. And so when we write with unfamiliar words, long words, long sentences, complex sentences, it's inaccessible to a big chunk of people. Okay, so that's one reason to write simply. The other is for those who are comfortable reading it, it's just cognitively taxing. It's just kind of unpleasant. And they're more likely to give up. They're more likely to defer reading it. And they're more likely to never read it. And so the idea is it's accessible to more people. It just turns out it also is more likely to be read if it's easy to read. You didn't ask this, but my favorite thing that I learned in writing this book with Jessica 
was I learned about this vision research where they track eyes when they compel people to read. Word, 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 period. And there's this thing called the period pause effect where they people sit at the period and you should do it next time you read. Why? It's so automatic you don't even notice. You pause at the period and you just synthesize the sentence. And very often people have to go back and reread it after the period because they know that they didn't get it. And basically that that's it. Like we just want people to not have to ever go back. Just make it easy for them. I love it. Yeah. And again, this is not looking down on anybody in terms of they read at a lower grade level or anything like that. It's more just, hey, we're busy. And again, I'm going to do it. It ties into the last one. Less is more because if you're making it shorter and you're using familiar words and you're not trying to puff it up or anything like that or sound over intelligent again, why would you want to bog anybody down with or throw hurdles in their reading as they're trying to read it quickly? It's more effective. It's kinder. It's more accessible. Win, win, win. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that this kind of folds into number three, which is designed for easy navigation. And again, because we're skimmers, the design, the layout, the graphical layout, the publishing layout, even which varies sometimes from all these different channels, we won't list off again. It can vary, but it's again, it's designing in mind for the quick, easy skimming, but not only skimming, but like comprehending actually receiving. Yeah, exactly. One of the things as we do the eye tracking stuff, we learn is that there are three kinds of reading. One is scanning, which is where you just dart around, just orienting. What is this about? And you look at headings and you look at the first words of paragraphs and then you move to the bottom and you move up and you go all over scanning. The other is skimming where we're just jumping around, but almost linearly a little bit, but skipping every few words. And then the other is close reading. And people don't close read very often. They don't close read all the time. And we write as if they do. And so we design for navigation. We want to make it easy for scanners and skimmers. And that means signposting. We ran an experiment where we added headings every two paragraphs or not to a big newsletter and more than double the likelihood that someone would click on anything after the second paragraph. Because when you add structure, it makes it easy for them to just figure out. Because otherwise, it's just a continuous, beautifully written, inaccessible wall of words. That's daunting. Yeah. 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 So the idea is just like, write for skimmers. And there's lots of sub-principles on how to do this. But the big picture is like, accommodate the way they read. It's on us. Like, they're skimming. So make it easy for them. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's something that works so well, it basically feels like magic. For me, I'm thinking air conditioning, noise-canceling headphones, definitely. Meeting-free Fridays? 
What about selling with Shopify? (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your own shop stage to the first real store stage, you don't have to just sell your own stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from brands you love and give your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Shopify also helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all-star sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash beyond at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Now, what's the difference between three and four? Three is designed for easy navigation, but then four is use enough formatting, but no more. It seems tied to it, but also different in enough of a way. Exactly. It's tied, but here's, here's what's distinct about it. We've done a bunch of surveys where we find that readers interpret bold, underline, and highlight as the writer is telling me this is the most important content in the entire text. So when you bold, underline, or highlight something, you're telling the reader this is the most important thing. So it's great. And we've got a bunch of experiments where you bold one sentence, people jump to that, they read that. They definitely make them read that. But we also, in those same experiments, can show they skip everything else because you license them to not read the rest because they got the key information unless they want it. And, you know, if they're really into it or they have a lot of time or for whatever reason they have, they might read it. But their goal almost always when they read anything we send them is to move on as quickly as possible. And bolding, underlined, highlight, really useful in helping them get the key information. But it also has this trade-off that if you use too much of it, One, you undermine, like you can confuse readers about what is the most important information. This is the most common mistake people make after uh, attending a workshop or training that I do is I get emails with like four different colors of font, italics, underline, bold, highlight, footnotes, uh, bullets, and they're like incredibly well-intentioned, but it's really hard for me to figure out what they're trying to do with the formatting. Like, are they trying to tell me that like this yellow means something different than red? I don't know. But if you choose just one kind, I don't even care what it is. One kind of formatting. Readers jump to it and they interpret it as the most important content. So in other words, it's useful to make things stand out. But if you overdo it, then nothing stands out. It's kind of like the whole, hey, if everyone's special, no one's special. If everyone gets a trophy, no one gets a trophy. <laughs> yeah, be- yeah, beautifully put, Eric. Exactly. Like, uh, the, And we've similarly run experiments where you, if you highlight five things, it's as good as not highlighting anything. Okay. Got it. So that was number four. Number five is tell readers why they should care. And I think this is probably the best place to ask. I know you have an example from an Airbnb email, which 
I thought was fascinating. Number five is tell readers why they should care. And I think this is an instance, this example of if you don't tell people why they should care, you might have also run afoul from one or all of the previous four principles in in conjunction with thinking you're telling them why they should care, but you've not done less is more. You've not made it easy to read. Your navigation and your formatting are all over the place. So it's just like, ah, this is not important. Yeah, I like the way you put that. The Airbnb example, this make it clear why the reader should care. It's a, just our goal is to help writers achieve their goal. So we're not counseling that you change your goal to something that you think readers will care about. You have your goal, you have your content, but then once you're done, you can go through the perspective of what do I care about, which is usually the way we write. What do I care about? What do I think out of this, the reader will care the most about? Because we may as well raise that up and surface that and draw attention to it. So Airbnb, when they went public and their initial public offering, they wanted to offer their hosts some opportunity to get pre-IPO shares, which typically go up in value after the IPO. So they send out an email to all hosts offering what would have proven to be pretty lucrative for many of the hosts. An announcement, all they do is click a button and sign up. And it's clear in the message, if you read it, it's written in legalese, which, you know, per what you just said, should have been written better anyway. But the subject line, if I were writing it, would be participate in our IPO, or I don't even know, what should it be, Eric? It'd be like a chance to make extra money. Something about why a host might make more money if they participate in this. Free shares in Airbnb or something like that. Instead, it was some incredibly legalistic phrase that has no meaning to any human other than a lawyer. I'm making up what it was, but it was some like disclosure opportunity for participating like sub agents of existing entity, right? Like that was the subject line. It was it, it was basically what the lawyers called this document as opposed to what the readers might care about. And so the, the TLDR version of this is. Once we have the content, we may as well go through a lens of like, okay, of this, what do I want to raise up to draw the reader's attention to so they might be enticed to read the rest of it? And I think it's interesting that you said TLDR because that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm racking my brain here. I'm thinking, what's a subject line that if I was an Airbnb host, what would have grabbed my attention? Probably something along the lines of, we're going public, you're first to get shares here or something like that, like early access to... Airbnb shares before we go public. Something like that. I love that one. There it is. Yeah. Early access to Airbnb shares. I mean, it's intriguing. Not, yeah. I mean, it, you've got to be subject line. So it can't be a hundred words. That's pretty good. Again, subject lines of emails. Th- th- there's a topic we could go off on for a while because that's the first thing people see other than who it's being sent from. So if it gets into their inbox and not just the spam, they see that first. And then if they open, because there's the law of diminishing returns here is like one, they've got to actually see it. Two, they've got to actually open it. And three, they've actually got to read it. And then four, click or, you know, follow the call to action. And each one of those drops off a cliff by like down to 10% of the previous one. So that's why all of this is important. The model Jessica and I have in this book is at least three or four stages. <laughs> I, I just like morphed it into four, but one, do they engage at all with what we write? And it's very common to just be deterred instantly and not engage. Two, conditional engaging. How deeply do they engage before they give up? 
right? Like they're reading it and like, I don't care. Or I think I know what this is about, or I'm depleted and I'm ready to move on to the next thing. And then three, if they've decided to engage, they've understood it and they're ready for the action, do they take action? That I assume I'm queuing up. That's the six principles. Make responding easy, which is how do we make it as easy as possible for the person to take the action we're asking them to take? And this is all of behavioral science. Reduce friction, reduce the number of steps, pre-populate, whatever it is. The easier we make it for our readers, the more likely they are to do it. Yeah. And that's the thing is like this last one is almost the real reason you're doing any of the writing at all anyway, is to not just to put stuff out, but to get an actual response, which is predicated upon them actually having read it. You want them to act, hence call to action. You're calling them to act. The call is the writing to get them to act. And so especially in, you know, your background, when you're doing things to get people to vote and get people to, you know, take action. Less is more, making reading easy, designing for easy navigation, and then formatting and telling them why they should care all come together for six. Get them to respond. Oh, my God, Eric, you just went through all six. So as if you were just (laughs) speaking, that was perfect. I only realized by principle three that you were listing all six principles. That's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Make responding easy. Jessica and I often say, if it's important to us, the writers, make it easy for them, the readers. It's going to depend on what the action is. It's going to depend on what your goals are. And this is a recurring thing as we talk with people about the book and this approach to writing. There isn't a specific law or rule. It depends on your context. But the thing that is true is they are busy and they are very likely to be skimming. And the risk is that they are going to move on before they have understood the key information you're trying to convey. How you operationalize that, how you translate that into your actual writing, depends on contact. Like I work with a student of mine is a CIA intelligence analyst. He writes intelligence assessments. They have to be 70 pages. You can't write less than 70 pages or they will think you didn't do your job. Okay. So he can't make them shorter. They got to look like they got to look, but he can make them easier to read. He can use formatting to reinforce the key information. If there's a call to action, he can make it unambiguously clear. He can add structure and so on. You, you know, you've got to apply it to your context. Now, one of the other things in this past, man, we're at the threshold here. We're recording this in October of 23. I believe it was November of 22 when chat GPT came out and people basically started to get to the point where we've been in now with this whole year of like, I have read literally a headline a day, at least that's had the initials or the acronym AI in it. I'm curious when it comes to generative AI, what you see as that role of that software or that emergence of that software coming into play with what you're talking about here in this book. ChatGPT came out just as we were wrapping up the book. And so we give a shout out to it at the very end, but it doesn't change the core principles, which is our readers are always busy. In fact, they're more busy with more stuff because there's more content being generated. But here's the way we think about it. One, the writer, us, we set the goal. We know the background information. Eventually, the AI LLMs can learn this. But for now, we set the goal. We know the background information. We know the norms and context. And then we have incredible support tools, better support tools than we've ever had in writing to to achieve those three things, which is achieve our goal, which we set, integrate the background context, and conform to what's expected and the norms of communication. That's one approach, which is like ChatGPT is another great tool for communicating effectively. although. It is not trained on effective writing. It's trained on well-written writing. It is trained to write coherent paragraphs, sentences, paragraphs, essays. 
it doesn't know the principles. It could, and eventually I assume it will. So what we did was we actually, if you go to our website, which I'm happy to put in the footnote, we trained GPT-4 on the principles and then tuned it for pre and post emails of a bunch of like edited pre and post emails. So it could see this is just for email. Oh, you know, you could imagine training it for lots of things, but this is just for email. And it's incredibly powerful at translating a normally written email into one that is easy to skip for busy readers. And we, it also is a Chrome extension and it's all free. It's on the website, writingforbusyreaders.com, writingforbusyreaders.com. You can see it. But what's really cool about it is it's, it's a teaching tool. Like it's really hard to talk in the abstract about writing, but what's great is you just plug it in. Oh, this is what I wrote. And then it's really good at like, it'll structure it so that it creates headings. It moves things into bullets, puts things in PS underneath. If it's not central to the argument, it formats accordingly and it simplifies and cuts the text. So it's a, it's a nice teaching tool. And that's not the final draft, just like chat GPT for everything. It's not the final draft. You can just copy it and then edit it. But it's a, it's a nice way of seeing what it looks like in real time, like a 24 seven coach on how to write effectively for busy readers. Very cool. Yeah, we'll have to link to that in the show notes. Speaking of editing, I think that's also something that like that comes along afterwards, or at least in most people's ideas, is just you get the draft. In other words, they get the clay up on the little thing, and then they start to remove pieces or shape it, and that's what their editing looks like. What does your perspective on editing look like when you're trying to follow these six principles and you've drafted something already? I have two perspectives on that. The first, writing has at least two functions. One is it clarifies our thinking. The other is it is a vehicle for the magic of getting an idea from my head into your head. Those are two totally different functions. And I think we often confuse them, which is writing is incredible at helping me. I thought I was writing about this. And then by the end, I'm like, oh, you know what? It's actually about that. Well, then that is not the thing you share. That is the thing you edit into something you share with the goal of getting an idea from me to you through this written modality. And that is where effective writing comes in. So that's when I think about editing, I think of it that way. The final thought on editing, and as we sort of start coming to the close, here's the big idea. The big idea is when we write anything, we should add a round of editing where we ask ourselves, how do I make it easier for the reader? Because when we do that, it's more effective, it's kinder, and it's more accessible. So it's not about just writing well, because I'm sure we can write beautifully and we can write completely and coherently. And we almost have this orientation where as long as it's all in there, it's on the reader to pull it out. And the radical version is, imagine if it's not on the reader at all. It's always our responsibility to make sure the reader gets the key information, knowing they're not going to read it. The fact is they're skimming. So imagine you can never fall back on, it was in there, you should have seen it. Imagine if it was always, I need to make sure that you can scan it, figure out the key information, decide to dive in or not. It's always on me, the writer, it's never on you. And that is edit so that you make it easy for the reader. I cannot agree more. And I think this is one of those things where I'm kind of surprised I'd never thought of it this way before. Feel kind of alerted to this finally that, yeah, it's signal to noise ratio, basically. It's like, okay, it's one thing that you've decided and clarified what you want to say, but it's still on you not the reader or listener to understand what it is you're trying to say. That's still on you. Yeah, it's really inspired by design thinking. 
in the early days of design thinking, there was a pretty novel and at the time radical approach in the design of everyday things, which is the book that came out in 1980, where the idea was if a user interacts with an object, can't figure out how it works and gives up, even if it was comprehensible with instructions and all those other elements, it's always the designer's fault. It is never the user's fault. And we're taking that even farther and saying, as the writer, it's always your fault if your reader didn't get what you were saying. Even if it was clear and complete, they didn't read it. That's on you, not on them. And then it's like, oh my God, if we really own that, which I honestly, I think we should. I know that also, aside from the book, which there's so much more to unpack from the book, you also do workshops that teach people how to write more effectively. Talk a little bit about that. Tell people where they can go to, one, grab the book and find out more about the AI tool, but also your workshops. Thank you. Yeah, it has been one of the most rewarding parts of this book is when we share it with people, you can get it at www.writingforbusyreaders.com. The website is there. You can ask about workshops there. I do trainings and we have other trainers who also do training. But one of the like great joys is I'd say some meaningful fraction of people in any audience will come up and say, oh my God, I've been fighting about this in my organization forever. And I'd always get dismissed as that's just a question of taste and a question of style. And our research and the research we coordinate in the book and organize is like, no, it turns out it's actually just a question of effectiveness. And so when I teach it, often I get brought into organizations, whether it's insurance companies to government agencies, to school districts, to other private sector firms or startups. It's training like with like back and forth of how do we rewrite things really so that we have the perspective of making it most effective for busy readers. That has been the most fun is the way it resonates with people. And the book is the sort of centerpiece of all that. But also the AI tool is a nice teaching part. If you want to use that as just a, a gateway, enter an email that you received. Like it's just like beautifully written, but long or unclear or a draft of something you've written and then just see what it would look like if written for busy readers. I love it. And I will definitely be using that, not just to copy and paste it and then use it, but to honestly reverse engineer it and see, oh, I see you took what I did and then you did this and that makes it easier to read. Hence, call to action being followed much more than what I had. Great job. <laughs> it's so fun because it's so you're like, why did I think of that? I didn't even realize I could have put all that in these bullets. And that way, if they're not interested, they can skip it. Awesome. Well, that's all we need to say. <laughs> this is a less is more podcast. I hope. Thank you so much, Todd, for being here. This has been a great conversation. And again, we'll link up to everything in the show notes that we talked about. Send everybody over to your site. Yeah. Just thank you for being here. This has been a great, refreshing little moment of clarity in terms of where we're at right now and how people read, but especially how they need to be writing. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Eric. I appreciate the pod. Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Todd. I know that I did. And I know, again, writing and reading and content, which I hate that word, but we've got to use it because it's like the filler word at this point. Content creation, content consumption, because we all like to eat our content, is a thing that is just part of everyday life these days. And if we're trying to convey things, even if it's video, even if it's an audio, it starts as written word in some form or fashion, or it plays a part in it in some way. And so I hope that this conversation and this book, Writing for Busy Readers, Communicate More Effectively in the Real World, is something that you'll pick up. I think this is a great book. 
definitely something I will be picking up over and over again, kind of as a reference point for future writing for myself personally. You can find the link to it in the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. If you found this episode helpful, and I hope you did, do me the favor and someone else a favor by sharing it with them. Hit the share button wherever you're listening to this, your podcast player app of choice, or again, over at the website, beyondthetodolist.com. Share this with somebody that you know needs to hear about this conversation, this book. Help them out. Help me out by spreading the word about the show. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode. Hey, thanks for listening to the end. If you're looking for a show to start helping you apply these productivity lessons on your business, check out Millionaire University. It's real lessons from real entrepreneurs teaching you what you need to know to improve your business or start one if you've been putting it off. It covers all aspects of business from starting, marketing, growing, managing, and everything in between, wearing all the hats. And as an added bonus, I am conducting a number of those conversations, those interviews, so you'll fit right in. Again, that's Millionaire University. Just search for it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast.